0: Crossings Podcast Community. This teaching is called A Prophet's Toolbox and is the first teaching in our study through the book of Jeremiah. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on September 26th, 2021. Thanks for listening. So, over the years, I've gradually become more and more interested in genealogies, uh, family trees, things that have to do with what happened to ancestors way down the road and how all that stuff gets passed down through the generations. And it's probably happened more and more as I've seen several of my grandparents die. Um, I've heard lots of stories about their lives, about my great grandparents and their siblings, but so much of what they talk about seems almost mythic, like a completely different time, a different century. And I'm interested, when I think about family trees and stories and traditions, I'm interested in these family patterns that show up, uh, what gets passed down and inherited as heirlooms. For instance, uh, my dad's dad, which I called Granddaddy, he was this remarkable guy, and he could fix just about anything mechanical. Uh, He once took apart a transmission, my dad told me, uh, of a car just to see how it worked and then put it back together. No instruction, nobody teaching him. He ended up working in construction and he became a foreman. And even though he dropped out of high school in the ninth grade to help my great grandfather work a farm, he could calculate how much concrete was needed to build these massive bridges in his head. And he could do it more accurately than the civil engineers that had just graduated from college. I mean, when he retired, (laughs) instead of just taking it easy, he built this massive woodworking shop in his home. And he built chairs and furniture and figures and all these different kinds of little intricate carvings just because he could. And he died uh, about four years ago. And before he passed, he gave me his old toolbox. Uh, one of his first toolboxes. I think this is probably from the 40s or 50s. And it had a bunch of his tools in it. And it's sort of a prized possession for me. It's Something that whenever I go to get something out of this toolbox, you know, I have to think about him and this legacy that he had. There's also a problem with this because the problem is that I don't know how to use most of the tools in the toolbox. My grandfather for all of his knowledge didn't pass along any of that information about transmissions and home remodeling and woodworking to my dad. And so as a result, I don't have any of that information. I didn't learn how to do any of that. And so I have this toolbox and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And, and I think about our relationship when I see this, I just don't know how to use the tools because the knowledge didn't get passed down. So last week, we began this conversation about uh, this Old Testament prophet uh, in the Hebrew Bible named Jeremiah. And so for the next 15 weeks or so, we are going to be looking through his story. We're going to be looking through the prophecies that he uttered in this historical time of crisis in Israel's life. But to be honest, the reason that I'm excited to teach this book of Jeremiah is because this story is deeply personal for me. And I'm going to share a lot about why that is today. So one of the reasons that this story is deeply personal has to do with my grandfather's toolbox. Because Jeremiah, like me, inherited something that he could not use. So the very first verse of Jeremiah says, The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anatoth, in the territory of benjamin and you may have no idea what the tribe of benjamin is or where this village of Anatoth is a lot of times we breeze right through this biographical information because we want to hear what god has to say this just doesn't have a lot of meaning for us but what you need to know about jeremiah's family is that his dad and his granddad and way way down the line were descended from a family of priests. These people that performed sacrifices and taught people and mediated God for the whole nation. And the reason this is important is because after several kings, beginning with Solomon, David's son, this famous king from the Hebrew scriptures, eventually the priests of Anatoth were priests in name only. Because going back to Solomon, the kings of Judah and Jerusalem had picked a different family, a different priestly group to serve as the main priests in the temple. And all the other priestly families who didn't belong to that group didn't have a job. So Jeremiah's name, his family tradition, is really just one big bitter memory of an earlier time when they were once an essential part of Israelite life and spirituality. The priestly toolbox had been passed down, but there was nothing in it anymore. And reason number one, why I love the book of Jeremiah, is that just because Jeremiah didn't receive the adequate tools from his family, did not mean that Jeremiah's life was meaningless. God still had something for Jeremiah to do. And it comes in uh, the next verse here in chapter 4, where we hear that the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah speaking, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So Yahweh, the God of Israel, calls Jeremiah to the task of speaking for God to his people. This mission that was devised before Jeremiah ever took a breath. And even as his father handed him an empty priestly toolbox, God was giving him something much, much bigger, a much holier vocation than the one that he might have inherited. God says, I reserved you. I made you holy, set apart, unique for this task. Just because you're not a priest anymore doesn't mean I'm done with you. But then Jeremiah responds. He says, uh, and this is in the words of the message, but I said, hold it, master God, look at me. I don't know anything. I'm only a boy. So a lot of people would say that this resistance is uh, falling under what's called a prophetic type scene, which means that the Hebrew Bible has all kinds of different scenes where a prophet is called by God to go do some kind of prophetic work, and that there's sort of the stereotype in the way that the literature portrays this. And, and most people think that the main prophet alluded to in the calling of Jeremiah is the prophet Moses, this guy who we met all the way back in the Exodus, when God's people are in bondage in, in, Israel, in Egypt, and God is creating this plan to liberate them from their slavery. And when Moses is called, he first declines, claiming that he doesn't know how to speak properly. And we don't really know what that was all about, But what's clear here in Jeremiah is that Jeremiah is resisting similarly. He's saying that he's not equipped to do this work yet. He's just a boy. He doesn't know how to speak the way that Israel needs to hear it. And so I don't know if this is just a literary device or just what happens when you find out that God wants you to do something really, really big. It, It seems, though, that most prophets in the Bible resisted the call initially they always found some kind of disqualifying element in their minds as to why they couldn't do it. To paraphrase Mark Batterson, Jeremiah tells us that God doesn't always call those already equipped, but he is willing to equip those who accept the call. So God answers Jeremiah by saying, don't say to me, I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms, to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah's excuse isn't enough for God to overcome. If God, if Jeremiah is willing to take the leap of faith, God is going to be present and rescue him. God's message to Jeremiah is he is called to do and say what is needed. I know you. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I will rescue you. I mean, for some of us, we can stop right here. (laughs) That's enough, right? To know that you're known by God, that you don't have to be afraid because God is with you. I mean, if we could just have that understanding alone, we would be doing pretty well. That's a solid foundation. But it is just a foundation. Ultimately, Jeremiah's actual calling isn't just in the fact that he is known and that God is with him. It can be found in these six verbs that God has appointed him to do in the world. To uproot, to tear down, to destroy, to overthrow to build, to plant. Six words, four are about destruction, maybe deconstruction, and two are about building or reconstructing. Based on the time that Jeremiah is living through, two-thirds of his vocation is going to be about deconstructing damaging pictures of God, religion, politics, and ways of living but it's not all deconstruction. It's not all just about tearing down. There is a smaller yet important still part of Jeremiah's mission that's going to be about helping Israel build something new in the wake of destructive forces, in the midst of exile in Babylon. Jeremiah's journey requires both sets of tools. So some of you, I don't know, have, maybe you've heard of this. Uh, there's a podcast series, it's pretty popular right now, especially in Christian subculture, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And essentially, this podcast is about this one megachurch, uh, which was pastored by a guy named Mark Driscoll, about its meteoric rise and its epic collapse in the process of about 15 years. And really, the whole podcast is more about deconstructing the cultural movements that produce things like megachurches and celebrity pastors and how so many people allowed abusive people to stay in positions of power because they believed that God was doing something through them. So a few weeks ago, uh, they had an episode about deconstruction in faith in what's called the exvangelical or post-evangelical movement that's kind of going on right now. And about how for some people, uh, the act of deconstruction was an end of faith. And I don't want to go into the whole thing, I encourage you to go listen to it, it's a great podcast series. But the painful reality for some people is that the version of faith that they're given, whether as a child, or from some excellent public speaking pastor who who has all the right things to say, that they're given some version of faith that just doesn't hold up to the complexities of life. When the storm comes, when bad things start to happen, the whole thing is just revealed as a deck of cards, a house of cards that collapses. But at this point in the podcast, the host, Mark Cosper, at the end of this episode, asks some really great questions about both the need and the danger of deconstruction. He He acknowledges that a lot of people have been really burned by bad experiences in the church and that they're trying to make sense of it. And the deconstruction of those events and experiences are absolutely necessary. I do not want to discount that. But what happens in all of this, especially the stuff that gets aired publicly, like on social media, uh, where the whole attitude is deliberately contrarian, uh, this deconstructing that has really no seeming intent of moving forward, it's just stuck in the present destruction. What's the point of this, he asks. He has some questions that we should consider. He says, what are we after in deconstructing? What's our motivating spirit? Is the desire to deconstruct reactionary or a quest for truth regardless of the cost to find it? It's two very different things. He adds, the answer to our pain shouldn't be to turn it into a weapon to tear down all communities of faith. Are we simply engaged in a project of deconstructing the places and people who hurt us? Or are we genuinely seeking the truth however it may reveal itself? So wherever you are, I would be willing to guess that some people in our community, maybe yourself, are really uncomfortable with this idea of deconstructing, uh, especially faith, this existential doubt of certain beliefs or realities. It may feel dangerous. Maybe that's you. On the other hand, there are definitely people out there in our world, and and it could also be you, who are neck deep in the middle of this deconstructing process, trying to reverse engineer all of these negative experiences that you've had with the church and, and why it's so painful to try to be in a community of faith. Maybe you don't know what you believe about being a part of a church. Maybe you aren't sure how to pray or what prayer even is. Maybe you're not sure what Jesus actually accomplished or how much of the Gospels are historical. Maybe you're not even sure there's a God, or if there is, if it's just some kind of construct that we've all engineered ourselves. I think the prophet Jeremiah is all about affirming both groups of people. Really, I I think that Jeremiah's mission was to affirm the deconstructing, those who are challenging the status quo, those who want to push back and fight for justice and tear down walls and expose the reality of the world that we live in, even though it's sometimes dark. But I also believe that Jeremiah's goal was to build something new in its place, something that's vibrant, something that's whole and healthy, something that's fruitful, I truly believe that we can't be called to just one or the other. It has to be both. The beautiful thing about prophetic living, the way Jeremiah describes it in his call scene, is that we are in a world that's not confined to using just one tool to get things done. I think we need a crowbar to help us deconstruct, to to pull down useless and harmful structures, ways of living in community that do more damage than good. We need to pull down the rafters of these structures that aren't built for the complex times that we live in. But we also need tools for creation. We need paintbrushes that can create a whole new reality out of a blank canvas, that that can repurpose the junk that we've experienced and turn it into something useful and beautiful again. We need the tools for deconstruction and we need the tools for reconstruction. Uh, Mark Nelson, who as a pastor, uh, he he shared this uh, New York Times article with me about the changing landscape of television over the last 20 years. And the author was talking about what a breath of fresh air this show that's airing on Apple TV called Ted Lasso is. And if you've been around us, um, we've even done some teachings about Ted Lasso. So we're big fans of Ted Lasso. um, And I know that lots of you may be watching this, but the author was so struck with the contrast of Ted Lasso to some of the dark, anti-hero popular shows of the last 20 years, like The Sopranos, or Breaking Bad, or the earlier seasons of The Office. Shows like The Sopranos, one of my favorites, um, it's all about dark irony. The writers of the show are asking you to like watching Tony Soprano without liking Tony Soprano. It's, it's actually a hard line to cross, but it's really all about viewing the cycles of brokenness, the ways that we're all trapped in family stories or or broken cycles of behavior. Whereas this new show, Ted Lasso, is about someone who really it's just impossible to not like. That despite whatever cynicism you may have, Ted Lasso seems to be able to break through it, to create some kind of good, hopeful future. But at the conclusion of this article, uh, the author warns against believing that liking Tony Soprano or Ted Lasso are either the problem or the solution. To quote, he says, irony and sincerity are not themselves enemy parties. They're simply tools of art, used to achieve the same ends from different angles to evoke emotion, to test what it means to be human, to play out ideas and get people to see things with new eyes. One tool chisels, the other smooths. Each does something the other can't. Whatever your story is, we need all of it. You need to embrace all of it. We need the dark irony, the broken bits, the pain and the hurt to get us to see what it is to be human. But we also need the hopeful parts, the willpower to press through that and to build nevertheless. One tool chisels and deconstructs. The other smooths, reconstructs. Our lives are much richer with both tools in the toolbox. And so for the next 15 weeks or so, it's my hope that you will see how these different tools do belong in the same box, how they're part of the same story. And so one of the things that we say at Crossings all the time is that God's story, the Bible, Scripture is one big story from beginning to end of God putting his family back together. And when we say that, it's not just some trite Saccharin. everybody's always happy here, and it all works out in the end kind of statement. The miracle of, of the book of Jeremiah, of the story of scripture being one story, is that it's so counterintuitive. It's at odds with itself. It's constantly being demolished and retold, and that's our story. That's part of what it is to be in faith. And so lest you think all of this is abstract or nebulous, reason number two why I am so passionate about telling Jeremiah's story, about studying Jeremiah's story, is that I think it's literally my story. So I decided to be a pastor when I was 15 years old, um, super young. I had no idea what I was getting myself into or what it meant but I believed it was the most devoted thing a person could do with their life for God. And eventually, I ended up at a place called Johnson University, where I was trained to be a pastor, and I loved learning the Bible. I loved studying, I loved making new friends, and learning from the professors. But when I got out into some of my internships, doing some weekend ministries at small churches or larger churches, I had my eyes opened to a completely different reality about what was happening in the church than what I had idealized growing up. I saw church splits. I saw the way gossip travels through a community, the power plays that people made to get somebody out of the church, these abuses of power, you name it, I saw it. It happened again when I started to realize that there were a lot of people who did not have my experience of church growing up. So many had been wounded by the things that the church had done. And this disillusionment occurred for me again when I watched people that I idolized, people who I thought were heroes of the faith about six or seven years ago, decide that politics were more influential in this world than the kingdom of God, as they proudly and shamelessly told me, who God needed me to vote for. And whatever party it is you think I'm talking about, it's yours. It's also your party. I felt that same disillusionment again in 2018, when Christy, my wife and I, had to make the painful decision to leave this church that we were at in Ohio for six years where we had made great relationships and friendships, and we had done so much to try to help serve this community in Dayton, Ohio, because we were explicitly told by the leadership of this church that money mattered more than people. That the church was about satisfying the regular givers rather than the people who were interested in Jesus but unable or not ready to give financially when we were told that women would not be allowed to teach because we just couldn't afford to have that conversation right now. <laughs> that keeping the lights on was literally more important than addressing the racial issues that were happening in our community. To be honest with you, I'm I'm still not anywhere close to being over some of this stuff. It, it still affects me. It makes me averse to conflict, speaking what I think is true, because... I replay these scenes of trauma and and arguing and the tension. But throughout all of this deconstruction that I've been going through, uh, that I'm currently in, and this reconstruction that I'm currently in, my calling to be a pastor never changed. My calling to help people understand God's story and their story in a less cruel and more generous way never went away. I've been a barista at Starbucks, a pest control technician, an adjunct professor, but in all of those things, still a pastor. Uh, Some of you, if you've been around the Knoxville area, um, may have heard about a guy named Doc Reese. He was a professor at Johnson University. And Doc was a mentor and sort of an idol of mine. Um, And he died just over a year ago. Uh, But Doc profoundly shaped the way that I saw my work and my vocation. I was his teacher's assistant for two years. And when I graduated, he gave me this. He gave me this staff. And on the staff, he hand-carved, he engraved my name um, on the sides in Greek and Hebrew, these biblical languages. And throughout the deconstruction through everything that I witnessed, Uh, The job changes, the deconstruction, the reconstruction, moving states. This image remained annoyingly, relentlessly with me. But we need these kinds of images if we are going to carry on with the work. We need some kind of sustaining, stable image that carries us through the continual deconstruction and reconstruction of our faith. That is the life of faith. Last week, if you watched, Mark introduced this word covenant, which is a word we don't really use a whole lot. Uh, Covenant is really just the relationship between two people or parties who agree to work together towards the same cause. They bind themselves together. And if there is a constant theme running through Jeremiah, it's the idea of covenant. That God, despite all that is happening, whether deconstructing or reconstructing, is present and supporting us. And so, to me, it seems appropriate that we use one of these tools of reconstruction to demonstrate that. On this blank canvas, there is in Jeremiah a promise that the covenant of God remains stable that this covenant is a line that never goes away, that's always present, even if it seems like it's going up or down. And sometimes it throws us for a loop. Sometimes it may even disappear seemingly off the page altogether. But what we can tell you is that as we go through this book of Jeremiah, as we study what God is doing through this prophet, that the line will appear even when we least expect it. And that as we go through this study, whether we are reconstructing from harmful experiences of the past, whether we are having the courage to ask these questions on our own for the first time, That God is somehow still beneath it all, present and carrying us through this covenant, this relationship that sustains us even in the darkest time periods of deconstruction. And so we want to invite you into that process with us. Because it's there in Jeremiah's story, but it's also in our story. So, may we have the eyes to see this covenant running through our story. May we have the courage to deconstruct the gods, maybe even the image of God that we've built. May we have the same courage to start painting a different picture of what God is like in our world today. And may we pass that toolbox in all of its contents, and all of its knowledge and skills to wield those tools onto the next generation as we do. Would you pray with me? God, our world is so complex. It's hard to know exactly how you're moving in our story if you're moving in our story how we could put that into words or define that there are so many people telling us exactly who you are or that you are not there that you're some figment of our imaginations god we believe that there is this mission that you've given us this mission to tear down the structures and the ways of thinking and the ways of being that are destructive, that are harmful, that are abusive, to get rid of those things and to put in their place things that grow, things that are beautiful, things that sustain life. So regardless of where we are with you, of where we are with this life of faith or the church, may we find the courage to take the next step on the journey, whatever that is. And at the very minimum, may we find ourselves known, may we find ourselves unafraid, and may we somehow deep within us know that you are with us. Amen. So we invite you into this time of common meal. Um, this time that we celebrate every week that we gather together, whether it's virtually, whether it's in person. It's this time where we gather around a table. We have bread. We have juice. Maybe at your house it's wine. But we, we consume these things. We make them a part of our story. And in some sense, this table is so simple because it doesn't require very much of us other than to come and to submit ourselves to this idea that we are entering into the story again that we are consuming the body and the blood of Jesus as strange as that may sound and and as we do this we offer ourselves as we are The, the, the crazy beauty of this table is that through the suffering through the death there is new life and as we consume and internalize Jesus in this meal we're able to enter into both the death and the resurrection the deconstruction and the reconstruction so as you come as you pause here or or take this common meal throughout the next song that we sing together may you in this meal find yourself healed may you find yourself accepted wherever you are whether it's in the deconstruction We're in the Reconstruction. And may you be unafraid to sing, to cry out to this God, wherever you may be, however you may be. And may you find that in the process, there is this God who is willing to carry you and sustain you and heal your whole self and your whole heart. Whenever you're ready to do this, we invite you to take this hand. If you have any questions about this teaching or are looking at different ways to engage in community here at Crossings, you can reach out to us at administration at crossingsknoxville.com. If there's anything we can do to take care of you as you're listening from a distance, please let us know. Shalom.